Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, and in today's episode, I'm talking to Vikram Chandra, author of Sacred Games, about Mumbai, also once known as Bombay, in India. Mumbai is a fascinating city with diversity in religion and architecture, and we talk about the colonial impact of the Portuguese and the British, as well as the Zoroastrian, Muslim, Hindu and Christian holy places in the city. It's also a feast for the senses, as Vikram invokes the taste of seafood from the harbour and the chart street food from the beaches, the sound of the clang of ships in the dockyards, as well as the action spectacle of Bollywood films and the multilingual slang of Hindi, Punjabi, English and distinctly Bombay language. We discuss how Vikram feels at home both in Mumbai, where he grew up, and in the Bay Area of California, where he lives and teaches. And he gives some book recommendations if you want to read more about the city. So I love talking about India and like many British people, I feel very at home there. English is used extensively. The people are welcoming and so friendly. The food is wonderful. I'm one of those people who goes to India and puts on loads of weight because I just love it so much. And it is said that you either love India or you hate it. And I know a lot of people worry about visiting, uh, particularly around the food, in fact. And, you know, uh, Vikram does mention Bombay belly as such. Uh, but, you know, I, I and I must admit, I have had that once in my travels, but uh, I just love the place. I think it's fantastic. And I want to go back. Uh, I have been twice. I travelled the Golden Triangle from Delhi to Varanasi and Agra. And then on another trip, cycled down the southwest coast through Kerala and the Western Ghats, which was just beautiful. So even though I haven't been to Mumbai, I actually wrote about the city in my arcane thriller Destroyer of Worlds as the home of my billionaire family who seek the Shiva Nataraja statue. Uh, I I write about the Dharavi slum, the Tower of Silence, where the Parsi Zoroastrians uh, left bodies to be devoured by sacred vultures, and also the Gateway to India, which is a very British memorial (laughs) to the Raj. And uh, a lot of my Travels of Varanasi appears in several of my books and I I do, it's one of the places that I just want to go back to and it's so diverse in culture that you can visit one part of it and it's completely different to other parts. So this quote uh, sums it up. Mumbai may not be my city, but it is my kind of city. And that quote is from Vikas Swarup, author of the book Q&A, which was adapted into the film Slumdog Millionaire. So I really enjoyed my conversation with Vikram and I hope it gives you a glimpse into Mumbai, an incredibly vibrant city. 
Vikram Chandra is the multi-award-winning author of Red Earth and Pouring Rain, which won the Commonwealth Writers Prize for Best First Book, as well as Love and Longing in Bombay, and Sacred Games, adapted into a successful Netflix series set in Mumbai, which has just been listed on the New York Times list of the 30 best international TV shows of the decade, which is amazing. Welcome, Vikram. Hey, pleasure to be here. Oh, I am so I've been so excited about this because I'm I just I love India so much. So I'm I'm very excited. Tell us a bit more about your multicultural background and your connection with the city. Um so uh my father uh was a corporate executive, so we moved all over the the countryside uh when I was a kid and then when I was in 11th grade we moved to uh the city. Um and we've been there ever since. And I came to the United States when in my second year of college, and I've been going back and forth ever since. A lot of my work has to do with Bombay, as you can tell from the titles of <laughs> at least one of my books. And my immediate family and my a lot of my friends as, are there. Yeah, fantastic. And I I haven't been, um, but I did want to ask you because it's so interesting. I always say Mumbai because I thought that's what we have to say now. <laughs> but you use the term Bombay in your book title and in your um, when you talk. So what what is the cultural history of of what we call the city? Oh, so so there's uh, there are various stories about how the city got its name. So there's a text written in the early 16th century which refers to the city as Mumbai. And then uh, there's a local community of fisher folk who've been there since antiquity, uh, who have a goddess named Mumba Devi. And so one story is that the city gets its name Mumbai from the goddess. And then the Portuguese arrived <clears throat> in, 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 in India and in the area. And when they saw uh, the amazing natural harbor, they called it Bombahaya, as in good harbor which then the British are said to have to have changed to Bombay. Um, and then the city is, is, uh, has a vast number of immigrants from other parts of the country. So from the north, the people who come there uh, refer to it as Bombay. Um, so so it's a multicultural city with as many names, it seems, um, as, as the people, the communities of people who've lived there. Um, and then um, recently, in the 90s, um, a local political party uh, changed the the name of the city officially to what um, they said was the pre-colonial name, which is Mumbai. <laughs> so in actual practice, what happens is that uh, depending on what language people are speaking and who they're speaking to, these various names kind of roll off the tongue. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, which is amazing. Well, I wondered, like, if if so, someone like me, a British person, what yeah. what would I call the city so as not to be offensive to anyone? I think Mumbai is now the official name, although in in some uh, various sort of official avatars, it's still referred to as Bombay. Uh, so, so you know, on on certain um, official institutes like the um, in Indian Institute of Technology in Mumbai is still known as IITB, right, which is Indian Institute of Technology, Bombay. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also, I mean, we've had a lot of renaming um, after independence, uh, but the old names still, um, they still linger. Um, 
I grew up on a road for for a while on a road in the south of Bombay, which is called Napiency Road. And that had been changed way back in the 60s to Lady Lakshmi Bai Jagmohandas Marg. <laughs> but if you say that to a cab driver today, he or she will be baffled. They won't know what you're talking about. And you'll have to say Napiency Road. Which is, yeah, one of those problems with changing names. But um, so you mentioned the Portuguese there. And I think this is an, a lot of people have heard of, you know, the British Raj kind of period. But right. the Portuguese, I feel, are almost um, unknown even to Europeans, uh, right. you know, that they were in that area. So what of the Portuguese history uh, is is still there? Oh, so, I mean, um I mean, that's there's a whole intriguing, complex history of its own. Um, the Portuguese were among, uh, were actually the first Western power who, in that great burst of colonialism, actually arrived on Indian shores. And the way the British got possession of the city was through a marriage. So in the 17th century, Charles II married a Portuguese princess, Catherine of Berganza, and he received the city as part of his dowry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I, I guess for me, because I live uh, sort of in the central part of the city in a neighborhood known as Bandra, Bandra, Bandra um, the, the most sort of obvious and prominent sign is, uh, uh, and one of the places I really love in Bombay is called the Mount Mary Church. Um, so the Portuguese came to this creek. It was then a creek in um, the early, in 1534. And being who they were, they burned down the local fishing villages. And, <laughs> and then over the next few decades, um, centuries, they built a lot of churches. And so Mount Mary, the official name is Our Lady of the Mount. And locally, we call it Mount Mary. And it's become a kind of... Uh, shrine for people of all faiths. Um, if you go there on, on any day of the week, you'll see people come and light candles. Uh, it's a place where people come to pray, to have their wishes received. It's sort of uh, like the, I went to Italy and I was really struck by uh, the Italian Catholic, um, you know, going to a, a Catholics going to churches and leaving little um, uh replicas of hands and feet, right? Wherever you have mm. the illness, you, you leave a little uh, symbol of that. And if you get if you get better, you come back and say thanks. So it's that kind of thing. Yeah, wow. That's so interesting. And uh, yeah, I had read that there was a massacre, like the Portuguese did um, kill a lot of people at the time. Yeah, well, there were, there were various uh, bloody events throughout colonial history. And so, you know, I should say also that, that it wasn't just the Portuguese and the British, the Dutch were there, the French were there, and wars were fought in India between the various colonial powers. And then the various um, Indian princes and kings uh, took part in these wars, sometimes on one side or the other. So it was all uh, very, very active. <laughs> in, mm. Right from the 17th century onwards, uh, the, it's it's a very complex and, and um, intriguing history that you can get lost in once you start reading it. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it almost feel, uh, you know, for a European, I feel at home in, yeah. in India. I mean, a lot of there's a lot a lot of signs are in English. I mean, everything's in it. Everyone, lots of people speak yeah. English. It's very uh, at home for a British person. But in terms of the British influence on Mumbai, what what is there that is um, from the British Raj or the architecture or different places? Right. Well, so 
some of the architecture is really clearly from that encounter between the British and India. So um, the university buildings, the Bombay University buildings in South Bombay, they're built in a style called Indo-Saracenic. And it's beautiful. And it's built from local red stone, uh, which weathers the monsoons really well. And I've often thought we should go back to that instead of using really bad concrete constructions, which don't do well in the monsoons. Uh, some of the police stations, you can clearly see, again, um, from that period, uh, the architecture, the great railway stations. Um, and then, um, like you were saying, in the language itself, in English, um, uh, which which is all over the place, um, on signs, on on. Uh, you know, on cinema tickets, everywhere you, you look, you see um, tracks of that encounter. And, and um, I think also in, in terms of law, right, uh, and, and the shape of parliament, all of that is very, very British, uh, influenced by the British. Europe through, the, through Britain, I, I, I guess I would say. Mm. And isn't there a big gate down by the waterfront? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. The Gateway of India. Um, which was built uh, for the arrival to welcome um, uh, the king when when he came to India. And of course, ironically, when the British Raj ended, uh, it was the spot from which finally the last uh, British troops left through the gateway of India. So in some sense, it was both um, a, a kind of entry, but most certainly exit. Yes, <laughs> I heard that. Um, and then, so uh, we talked more about the European stuff, but then the, the very Indian side and right. the kind of more uh, different religions, so the Hinduism, Muslim, we've got right. the Zoro Zoroastrians as well in, in Mumbai, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah no, I mean, that's one of the amazing things about India in general, that every religion's been there. I mean, Islam's been here for uh, well over a thousand years. Uh, there was not many people know this, but there was a Jew Jewish presence in India um, that lasted in very, very uh, uh, large terms for as a kingdom for 800 years. Uh, because the story goes that they were fleeing the fall, the first fall of the temple, and they came, the Zoroastrians came uh, twice, actually. Uh, and then there's some really interesting religious spots that are really worth seeing in the city. So one of my favorite is, again, close to me where I live. It's called the Mahim Darga. A Darga is a shrine. And it's the shrine of, uh, of I guess you'd call him a saint named Makhdum Ali Shafi, uh, who settled in this area in the early 15th century. And during his lifetime, he was revered um, by Hindus and Muslims for his very liberal ideas and his humanity. And what's interesting about this is that for reasons that are not quite completely clear, he's become the patron saint of the city police. And so there's an annual festival and two officers from each of the 84 police stations of the city are, are they're officially part of the, of the festival. And they, some of them are the first to engage in the ritual offering uh, of a, of a shawl, uh, which is given uh, from them or from the pilgrims to the, the shrine. And I guess the other one that I uh, that is really famous, actually, is the Siddhivinayak Temple. And this is a small temple of Ganesh, that uh, the elephant-headed god, which I think most people will know. Uh, 
mm. uh, which was constructed way back in 1801. Um, and Ganesh, as as you might know, is the remover of obstacles. You you um, whenever you start a project or you go on a journey, you go to seek his blessings. So often you will see uh, big big film stars and producers the day before a release. Uh, you'll see them at the temple asking for success right at the box office <laughs> and that's that's absolutely brilliant i think that's what i love is this you know this real mix of ancient and modern and i i wanted to ask you about bollywood because i do feel like mumbai is very famous for bollywood and um the city obviously has this super wealthy look about it on some social media and then obviously there's poor poorer areas um but what influence does that bollywood have on the city Oh, it's huge. I mean, it's it has been since the beginning of the Indian film uh, business um, industry, which started way back uh, at the end of the 19th century. I mean, the first films made in India were being made barely after the first, uh, a couple of years after the first films started getting made in Paris. Um, and so it's always been a city that's mythologized itself through the cinema. And so I think a lot of ideas about ourselves are reflected in the cinema itself. Um, and, and as you were saying, there's just ungodly immense amounts of money uh, because Indians are fanatic film goers. Um, and so insofar as such a large city can be an industry city, Bombay is certainly a film town, right? And, and again, you know, you see film stars driving by. There's certain neighborhoods where... Um, uh, struggling actors and directors who come in uh, to try and make it in the business. You go to those neighborhoods and you can see them in the coffee shops and the bars. Uh, so it's very lively and active and, and in that way, really exciting um, for all the work that's getting done there. But I should also say that it's not the only film industry in India. I mean, there's distinct film industries in the South, in Tamil, in Malayalam, in Bengal. Um, so very, very powerful and popular um films being made elsewhere. And one of the, I think, contradictions is that the West usually, I think, thinks of Indian film as Bombay, Mumbai movie making. And that's absolutely not the case. Yeah, I think that's really important. Well, the stereotypical view in my head is a musical with, right. you know, dancing and some kind of romance. Um, whereas, for example, your Sacred Games is really <laughs> gritty, kind right. of, it's not musical at all. <laughs> so, right. you know, what, what, what would be... What would you recommend? Like if people want to obviously Sacred Games, which is on Netflix, but w would there be any other films that you'd be like, this would be a good film to see that represents c c the current state of Indian film? Oh, there's many, many. Um, I guess off the top of my head, uh, there's a film called Sony, which is S-O-N-I, which is about women, uh, police women in Delhi. Uh, there's a, uh, movie called uh, Malayalam movie called Jalikattu, J-A-L-L-I-K-A-T-T-U, uh, which is a Malayalam movie. Uh, so Jalikattu is a traditional sport um, and in which men uh, try to hold on to a bull's hump uh, for as long as possible. But the movie is about uh, a bull that escapes from a slaughterhouse and then the men who gather, uh, who collect to hunt it down. Uh, it's an amazing film. And there's uh, lots of variation uh, in that. So one of the things that's happened across the country is that we have multiplexes, um, 
with with smaller theaters. So the kind of urge to make big films for big audiences is still very much there, but there are alternative alternatives for producers and uh, banks that are funding the movies. Um, and then also all the streaming services and television make it possible to make other kinds of movies. Although there's still the uh, the big, huge, humongous productions are still alive. And uh, oh, one of the other movies that I should mention um, that that I guess you could say is in some way part of the traditional filmmaking setup is called Gully Boy, G-U-L-L-Y. And this is about rappers in Bombay. And again, it's kind <laughs> of stunning film. Uh, and then if you want to watch a really like the state of the art big commercial movie it's a film called war um as in you know war uh which has uh rithik roshan who's the amazingly handsome uh matinee idol uh, has been for the last 20 years uh so there's a range of stuff that's being done now uh, mm. and watch all of the above um that's cool because I I think you know sometimes it's it's great to see it you know on on the on the film or TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So I wanted to ask. Uh, I mean, you've mentioned the Fisher Folk, Mumba Devi, and you've mentioned the harbour. What part does water play in the city? Like, does it obviously shapes the geography of it? I I think you know people might not know it's on a peninsula on the edge of the Arabian Sea. Right. It's like a you know a coastal city but yeah it's so big so does water play a big part in the city or is it just the outside suburbs um it's interesting it's a paradox so i mean the the fate of the city certainly has been completely linked to the the seaways right so it becomes known i mean the gateway to india really applies in a larger sense to the city because a huge amount of trade starts happening through there it's the port through which a lot of ideas enter. Um, the dockyard, which is a very large dockyard um, established in 1735 by the East India Company, um, is is has a, a very long and storied history. Um, so the East India Company wanted to use Malabar teak, which is a really good wood that's durable. It's strong. Um, it lasts a long time. It doesn't crack or split. And so uh, more than 400 ships were built um, uh, over the next century and a half. And, and some of these were the best ships in the, in the water globally in those days. And so the dockyard, that dockyard still is a big naval dockyard for the Indian Navy. Um, I have to say, though, that as far as the populace of the city is concerned, um, there is some sailing, but not really that much. So there's surprisingly little activity on the water, but people and really ordinary people, poor people spend a lot of time on the beaches, um, especially because the beaches have some of the most delicious street food on them, right? <laughs> Which is chat, C-H-A-T. Uh, I think if you're going to Bombay and you might want to try it, but you've got to be careful because, you know, I mean, our mothers warned us against eating that food when we were kids. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you don't want to get a case of Bombay belly. <laughs> oh, no. But OK, so what is chat? So people know what, like, what is oh, it? So it's, a, it's a variety of stuff. So like my favorite is called bhilpuri, which is puffed rice, tamarind, a little bit of uh, sometimes yogurt, uh, lots of onions mixed together. 
So it's spicy. Chaat is generally spicy and and fresh. It's cooked right there on the beach or, or prepared right there in front of you. Um, and it's cheap, right? It's very economical. Although, you know, the five-star hotels have their own chaat, which is... <laughs> which is more expensive than the chat on the beach, obviously. Yeah, well, well, that's a good tip, though. So because, of course, we do want to eat. I mean, I love Indian food and I actually cycled once for three weeks down the southwest of India and I put on five kilos (laughs) (laughs) because I ate so much and I just love the food. So um, what what are your recommendations for food uh, in Mumbai? And and if we can't eat chat on the beach, where where can we go? (laughs) Well, like I said, in in some of the hotels, in some of the spiffier restaurants, um, and and um, you'll be able to try it. I mean, I think what I would recommend really is that there's a lot of really good seafood, um, and and at various price levels, right? So um, in the south of the city, uh, there's a couple of restaurants. Uh, one is called Trishna, or and another one is called Mahesh. Uh, Trishna's favorite, one of my favorites. Uh, there's a restaurant called Gajali, G A. J-A-L-I, which is very traditional seafood. And uh, Condé Nast did a list, uh, I think, last year. And this was of the best restaurants in India. And this was number 15. Mm. Um, I guess then, since you talked about uh, Zoroastrian, um, there's two different kinds of Zoroastrian Zoroastrian, um, uh, cuisines in the city. Um, So the Parsis were... uh, a community that came to India seeking refuge sometime between the 8th and 10th centuries. Um, and then there are more recent Zoroastrian arrivals who came from uh, the last, you know, 1800 onwards in the 19th and 20th centuries, and they're uh, called Iranis. Um, and so they have two different cuisines. So Parsi food is all over the city. Uh, uh, there's a cafe called Britannia. Uh, the Irani restaurants, uh, cafes, I'm sorry, as they were, uh, as they're called, were a big mainstay when I was growing up. And, and, um, so in the 1950s, people say there were about 400 of them. There's probably only about 25 left now. And, and not because they're less popular, but, um, uh, the people who came and set them up, their kids have now gotten <laughs> really advanced educations and aren't interested in running those restaurants anymore. But the Iranian uh, cafes, the Irani cafes, uh, they're famous for their tea, which is a very strong um, Irani tea, Persian tea. Um, and they're also really democratic in that they're cheaply priced. And so um, when I was growing up as a college student, I could go there and some very rich lawyer would be sitting in the cubicle next to me and we'd both be eating the same food. Oh, I should say actually that that one place in the south of the city that uh, you can try both of these is called the Bombay Canteen. Um, and this was also in Condé Nast list as the number two in the list of best restaurants in India. Mm. Uh, wow. But, you know, there's amazing, it's a, it's a eating city. Everyone <laughs> likes to go out and eat <laughs> at whatever price you like. So one of the things that you should do is, um, Zomato's there. Is Zomato a British thing as well? The, no. the no. So if you look for Zomato India, so it's a website and an app, and it's one of those things where people, the restaurants and people rate the restaurants and so forth. So that's very useful. And then if you're feeling particularly lazy, there's a delivery service called Swiggy, which will pick up food from any of these restaurants and deliver them to you. 
That's uh, very cool. I was going to ask on the food. So some people, I mean, if if I was going to a more rural area, I would just eat vegetarian food. Um, right. So and and that some people think that you shouldn't eat meat. But in I mean, Mumbai, so. <laughs> You know, I mean, you, do you do you think? I mean, obviously, eating vegetarian in India is great because it's so good. Yeah. The food is so good. Uh, w- would you say to people? I mean, you mentioned bad tummies. Should people stick with vegetarian, or is it just fine in Mumbai? I don't think the vegetarian versus the non-vegetarian, at least in my experience, hasn't <laughs> made that much of a difference, right? It's uh, it's more um, where it's being cooked, whether it's it's food that's fresh. Right. Uh, and 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 some of it is just luck. Right. Like all it takes is like <laughs> you might be eating in a really spiffy restaurant, but if a fly sits on your food, well, there you go. Right. Uh, <laughs> so you probably I guess I, I shouldn't make light of it. You probably have a better chance of not getting Bombay Belly if you're um, if you're in, you know, one of the spiffier places. But but there's always the, the off chance that you would. Yes, absolutely. Whenever we travel, that's part of it. Now, um, getting around the city, uh, the train network is uh, very good, isn't it? It is, but it's, it can get really crowded. Uh, so depending on where you're going and when you're traveling, it becomes an adventure. I'm sure people might have seen those pictures of uh, the local trains with people literally hanging out of the doors. Yes. Right. <laughs> so, so you probably don't want to do that unless you're looking for that kind of like really local experience. Uh, I should say though that the traffic is really, really bad, and has been particularly so for the last couple of decades since uh, the economic revival. Because uh, once people started being able to afford it, everyone wanted a car, and the streets are you know a few centuries old, and they're not exactly built <laughs> for that many cars. Uh, so much of our planning when I go to see a friend in another part of the city is about geography, right? Like it'll take me two hours to travel from point A to point B. So I'll see you at noon, but I'll have to leave the house at 10, right? Mm. So, and so you arrange your whole day around your travels, more or less. Yeah, well, that that's good to know because it is, you know, it depends where you are in the in the in the city and trying to get to different places. So that, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, great. So uh, you've given us some fantastic stuff there and I'm really looking forward to going. Uh, but I do want to change tack. So you uh, teach creative writing at the University of California and you live this multicultural life. Um, so I wonder, like, what does home mean to you? Is it a different place at different times? Well, I think multiple places are home. So certainly now California, um, the Bay Area where I live is home. My kids are here. I have friends here. And then, you know, the other um, home is in India and and, um, and and particularly in the city. And so I go back and forth between the two. And it's sometimes a trial, but it's also something really that's become a part of me that makes me who I am. And just this morning, when I was thinking about what we're doing now and thinking about all the different nationalities and communities that have come to Mumbai, I was thinking that this is not new, right? We are all immigrants at some point from somewhere Mm -hmm. going to a new place. Uh, And people have always moved across the world. Uh, so, So we tend to think of this as a modern condition, but I think it's always existed. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I mean, do you find yourself, though, um, 
because obviously you speak a different language as well when you're back in India or different languages. Yeah. <laughs> um, so do you do you behave differently? I mean, are you are you a different person in in Mumbai? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I mean certainly in terms of the way that people are with each other, uh, I notice a difference, right? Like, I mean, you were talking about the the trains the local trains in Mumbai, mm. uh, there's a sense of space that I think is very different in the United States than it is from India, right? Like even just how close people sit with to each other when they talk, right, of personal space. And and uh, I think it tends to be very different. Um, gestures, I think, like when I'm talking to an Indian person, my Indian head nod gets a lot <laughs> more naughty. Right. And my daughter sees me, then they say that they know when I'm getting a phone call from India, because as soon as I start talking, my Indian accent comes back, <laughs> doubled or tripled. Uh, so, yes, there is all that. Right. And, and but I don't think, again, it's a bad condition to be in. I mean, being multilingual in several ways besides just language is really, uh, I think, an enriching way to live. It is. And um, of course, uh Sacred Games has been recorded in a lot of languages, hasn't it? Just explain that because I think it makes it very special. Right. So, so uh, one of the problems of uh, or, or challenges of writing a book about India, not just now, but in any part during its history, is that we grow up kind of multilingual by default, right? So I grew up speaking Hindi and English at home, um, depending on where I was at the time uh, which part of the country was in, I learned Gujarati and Punjabi at various points in my life. There are friends of mine who, without sort of knowing it, learned four or five languages when I grew, uh, when they were growing up. So how do you represent this in fiction? <laughs> it becomes really hard. Uh, whether you're writing in English or Hindi or any other Indian language, you've got to capture all the other languages. So in writing Sacred Games, one of my, um, I had great fun with this is, to intersperse the English with um, with Hindi, Punjabi, the local Bombay slang, right? Which is, especially the criminal slang, which is so particular that people from other parts of India would have no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> uh, so you, you kind of like leverage that and sprinkle it in. And then in the series, what they did was, which I thought was great, was that it's mostly in Hindi and local city slang, but there are entire scenes that are in Punjabi or Marathi, right? So it it tries to replicate very much how people exist in, in the city, which is to say in a multilingual universe. Yeah, which is just so cool. So, of course, we have your book, Sacred Games and Love and Longing in Bombay. But I wondered uh, if you could recommend a couple more books uh, about Mumbai or about India that you, you think are fantastic. Oh, sure. So... Uh... I'm going to be a little nepotistic here. I have a really very, very close friend named Hossein Zevi, uh, who helped me write Sacred Games. In fact, he's one of the two people that that book is dedicated to. So if you're interested in crime and the mafia and that kind of interesting stuff, he's got two great books. One is called Dongri to Dubai, which is D-O-N-G-R-I to Dubai which is a history, a nonfiction history of uh, crime in Bombay and the mafia. And then his other book, which is really interesting, is called Mafia Queens of Mumbai, uh, which he co-wrote with Jane Borges. 
And this one is about women in the macho underworld of Mumbai. And what's really interesting is that they weren't just sort of gangsters malls. Uh, many of these women were players in their own right, bosses. Uh, so he does a great job of laying out this landscape in there. Um, I guess the other nonfiction book I would recommend is called Bombay Meri Jaan. Uh, Meri Jaan means my life. And there's a very famous old song that's become kind of the anthem of Bombay. So that's what it's named after. <clears throat> and uh, the book is a, a collection of writings, I say over the last 40 or 50 years, about the city by a whole bunch of um, uh, of different writers, among them uh, big players by like Salman Rushdie. Um, and this is edited by Jerry Pinto and Naresh Fernandez. And then uh, I guess I'm being uh, kind of nepotistic again. There's a great book called Narcopolis by a friend of mine named Jeet Thail, T-H-A-Y-I-L, uh, which is about, um, it's not quite underworld, but it's about drug addiction in the city. And it's in, in dealing with that, it becomes a kind of history of the city. Mm. Yeah, you've got some gritty reading there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm trying to think of uh, a kind of funny software. <laughs> Nothing comes to my mind offhand. Oh, and I guess I should say Salman's um, Midnight's Children, right? I mean, that's it goes all over the country, but certainly uh, its its beginnings and the beginnings of some of its characters and its protagonists are in Bom Bombay. So uh, Midnight's Children is a great read as well. Mm, fantastic. So where can people find you and your books online? Uh, the easy way is my website. So it's just my first and last name put together, vikramchandra.com. Brilliant. So thank you so much for your time, Vikram. That was great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.